think about what's going on with Paul here, how this could have been very, very scary for him. And you know it had to be. One of the ways we know is through some of the events that happen. What, when we look at back at Paul and we see some of the things that um, have transpired in these last seven or eight chapters, what do we know? What, what has happened in there that shows us that Paul needed encouragement? Jesus showed up in his cell that one very profound night and said, have courage, don't worry, you are also going to testify of me at Rome. So he gave him that confidence. And when else did he show up? Well, when he was in prison, he was singing psalms and hymns. That was earlier, that's right. He was singing, and an angel appeared and gave him escort out, okay? Okay, yeah. Again, so and so again, he had a supernatural appearance or um, message, basically from God. Jesus Himself this time did not appear, but an angel appeared to him and gave him this confidence. Now, um, James and I were talking about how there these supernatural, just a proliferation of them of supernatural events taking place in the Book of Acts, right? Why so many miracles? What are we kind of gleaning out of this as we're looking at it? What do you think is the reason there are so many miracles taking place in such a consolidated amount of time here? Okay, it's the birthing of something new, right? Um, Without the supernatural signs, what would we be clueless about? Potentially. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean... Say it again. Okay, that God himself was in it, number one. When we opened the book of Acts in chapter um, 2, what is it that Peter said when he stood up before the group and told them, no, these men are not drunk. It was too early in the morning, right? What, What was it that they were witnessing by these signs? That's exactly right. Fulfillment of prophecy. God told you these things would happen. And he even said that in that day, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. They shall see visions, right? And have dreams. And we see then that then the gift of tongues came as that sign to validate that the spirit had fallen, that God's word was fulfilled. And what had happened previously also in the life of Jesus, that led up to this place here 40 days later where the spirit fell. His life, his death, burial, and resurrection. If that's not a sign and a wonder, I don't know what is, right? Exactly. Another, the ascension, exactly. So all these events that have been happening in the book of Acts, the supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles, were designed for a specific time and a specific purpose according to what we're looking at in Acts anyway, right? And it helps us to establish, number one, an understanding that signs, wonders, and miracles are truly gifts from God. They are designed for the church. And when you do your spiritual gifting uh, study, you're going to see some of these listed among the gifts, the spiritual gifts themselves. And therefore, what we do need to at least begin to do as God's children is open our minds to understanding that these are truly gifts. 
They truly are. Just like the gift of teaching, there is the gift of signs, wonders, and miracles. That, the, that there are people who are gifted to heal. And it's listed very clearly in, in the, the uh, doctrinal teachings on that subject of spiritual gifts. So I think that's one great thing that we have learned and been kind of exposed to. And I would, I would like to say very clearly that I think just as Pastor Rob spoke yesterday, I think the closer we come to the end times, the more important it's going to be for us to open our eyes to see these things and to discern between false wonders and false teachers and false whatever and the true ones which are from God. And that's going to be the, the difficult part, I think, is um, really splitting the hair on some of these things because some of these are heresies. Somebody, by definition, give me what a term, the term heresy actually means. Does anybody know what a heresy is? Okay. A part of a sect. That's right. Okay. A heresy. Okay. So it's kind of a, it, it's, it's a breaking off of the orthodox. Okay. But at its, but at its root, yeah, at its root is what? There you go. That's a good way of saying that. I like that. Did you hear that, Lois? Not made out of whole cloth. It's like, it's like piecing, you know, cut and you lay it in. So it's like a quilting analogy, and I get it. Thank you, James. Okay, it is a mixture of two things. Its foundation has a thread of truth, which is what, by the way, sucks you in, because it seems right on the surface. But, but underneath that superficial point of truthfulness is what? Dry, dead bones. Right? It's like the whitewashed tombs that Jesus spoke about. Similar to that analogy also. So what you have to understand is because it, it, it does have a thread of truth in it, you're going to have to have good discerning. You're going to have to know your doctrines about the gifts of signs, wonders, and miracles in order to distinguish what's true versus what's false. Okay. That's right. That's exactly right. I I am very excited about some of these points that we've learned. What we have learned from Acts is one of the things that we want to talk about a little bit this morning. So we can put up here then on our list some of the things we learned has to do with the sign uh, gifts. Right? We've at least been introduced. Because in our world today, in Christendom today, because of the generations that have passed, and I believe one of the reasons we've fallen into this weakness of understanding it is because we have had many generations, many thousands of years now, between the supernatural falling of the Holy Spirit in that profound, prolific time of gifts. We've had a more of a lull in between, but we're approaching a time when they're going to become prolific again right? In between, have they completely ceased? No. However, we know that they are going to get greater and greater as the end of the age approaches. So we need to start opening our minds to studying it, becoming 
not resisting the whole idea. It's not a big taboo, you know. It is a truth, and we need to understand it. And I don't think we do very well, and I know I don't very well. So I would like to know it better, and so I'm, I'm hoping that's what we will do. So one of the things we have learned from Acts is at least having an introduction to these sign gifts and seeing them exercised correctly, but also through the, through the process, we've seen that sometimes that they were done incorrectly, right? All right, so let's talk a little bit about what we have learned from Acts. Just as a beginning, it'll help us kind of lay out all the things that we've seen so far in this book. Tell me some things that we have learned uh, in this uh, study over the last, what, 16 weeks or so. Okay, the prayer, the, uh, the power of prayer in, in the church. So w- is there a category that you would, f- would put that under besides just the subject of prayer? Because although the subject of prayer comes up, it really comes up in a, under an, a title of um, a, a, a category, basically, about what? Okay. Right. Okay. The. In the name of Jesus. Okay. All right. I saw it kind of as a part of the essentials of a healthy church. That number one, prayer would be one of those subjects. I'm going to put it up in that way, if you don't mind. Uh, And just not even essentials of a, a healthy church, but the doctrines of God's church, right? The things that we need to know about church. One would be prayer, right? What would be some other things about these doctrines that we've learned about a church? What kind of subjects have come up? The, the what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. The offices. Offices and structure. Okay, the offices and structure. How a church is to function. How uh, God basically, little by little, as the church was growing, you could see the need for people to have assigned roles and specific offices in order to make things run orderly, right? And also so that decisions could be made. We had councils that we saw formed as we went along where people went back to the original apostles and put before them certain problems and complications that came up and the council made decisions and then letters went out to instruct the church on the whole on how to either understand the doctrines of their church or, and how to, d- to handle certain problems within the church. So exactly, the offices and the structure is another one. What about... Okay. Yeah. Okay. So prayer offices. So in that case, what I really saw was we, in at least on the whole, is is that we have um, learned doctrines about the our triune God, and each of their basically their offices or their distinctive roles in relationship to the church. Right. So let me put this, let's say doctrines of our triune. 
So, and, and so that for, therefore we've learned about God, the father, right? Jesus. Uh, the, and in his case, we're going to call him the savior and Lord. I, I put that very specifically because that has been a big issue that has come up in this study. Uh, Fa- God, the father who is the sovereign, Right. He's the sovereign over it all. Jesus being the Savior and the Lord of the church in the message of it, right? He's the prophesied Christ, so forth. And then the Holy Spirit. And how have we learned about this, the Spirit? What is the role of the Spirit in the church? What have you come to see? There you go. Helper. Um, yeah, the, he's the one that he leads you to walk in the spirit, right? He impresses upon you truth. Um, he, he's always oh, also this. Yeah, he is the power in our life. Would you say that too? What, what is the key uh, verse that we see that right away in Acts chapter 1? One eight. When the Holy Spirit falls upon you, you will what? You will receive power and you will do what with it? Be my witnesses. So there you are, Marion. The power of God in you, you are his witness. And in your circumstance, God's power then works through you to then magnify himself in the world. Isn't that awesome? It is awesome. Okay, so we see the doctrines then of our triune God have definitely come out. Um, We see prayer and offices as far as the doctrines of God's church. Uh, What are some of the other things that we learned about the church that we've seen demonstrated? Yes, okay. How to handle conflict. For instance, where they had to go to the church council, so forth, right? Um, and besides conflict, then there's the other quality of that, which is discipline. What did we see about that? What did we see about discipline? Yeah. <laughs> Do not lie to the Holy Spirit, because if you lie to the Holy Spirit, what, James? Well, you could die. You could possibly, you could potentially lose your life. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they did, right? Now, God doesn't always take our life, but he could. However, but when you lie to the Holy Spirit, who have you lied to? You have lied to God. I love that. So that's another one about the Holy Spirit. If you lie to the Spirit... You lie to God. You have lied to God. Meaning, in other words, what about the Spirit? The Spirit is God. Isn't that cool? Awesome, te- awesome insight. All right. Any other points that you've come up? What are some other bigger uh, subjects that we've come up across? Just the sovereignty of God and what God says you shouldn't do. 
Yes, the sovereignty over it all, that he does what he says he does. He ha- and I think it's really cool that we see really clearly in here that the church itself was God's design plan and purpose. And as we move through each of these events in the lives of Peter and Paul and so forth, we see God actually intervening in it to make sure that their lives are protected when needed, that they're moved to go certain places, or that doors were shut to prevent them from going certain places. That quality of our God that we learn here, does that apply to us today? Absolutely, if you're alert to it. When I was, years and years ago, we used to call this God sightings. We taught, we taught our children this when they were little. So if you've got little kids, it's a great thing to do. So, you know, spend one whole day with them and say, we're going to do God sightings today. Today's a God sighting day. Every time you see the Lord doing something specific that, that either you've prayed for or asked him for, or that's just a blessing to you, then you come, you either, you write it down or you come back to me and you tell me about it. We'll talk, we'll talk about this. Um, we, we did it with our, my children when they were little all the time. And we had a group of us at, uh, when I lived at Angelic the first time, which was like 1983, 84, my kids were like three and four tiny. And, um, we would have a, gr- the gr- a whole group of us, and we get all these kids together, like 10, 12 crazy kids, right? And they're at the swimming pool. So all day long, we would sit at the pool with the kids, and the kids would have God sightings all day, day waiting to see if God would do something really cool for them, you know, s- to show himself in some special way. And we got to see these little innocent children see God in ways we would have never seen him. You know, and some of them were totally silly, but the idea is we taught our children to open your eyes to see God working in your life every day, right? Be aware of it. Be sensitive to it. Think about it. Be, be alert to it. And in doing that, we taught them, I think, a valuable lesson. One of the things I see in my daughter now as an adult is she, she journals and blogs now, even for the church. She recognizes the sighting of God in her life at all kinds of turns. And she's able to, to make application of that. So it's very cool. So yes, our sovereign God, and he's sovereign over it all. He had a plan and he's watching over it to ensure that it's accomplished. And he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Right. His plan has never changed. Exactly. Um, what about the use of certain people too? Have you noticed the, the kinds of people that God has worked through in this book? Yeah, it doesn't even seem like they have to be all that qualified. Does that make you feel better? <laughs> it does me. <laughs> I don't have to know it all. I just have to be available, right? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yes. Going back to the lines uh, of the Holy Spirit, Ananias really lied to Peter, right? So when you look at how we deal with it today, so he knowingly And why is that? Because where's the Holy Spirit? In our heart. In us. No, actually, that's a very good point, Heinz. I like that. So if you lie to me about something because I am a vessel of the Holy Spirit, you are lying to the Holy Spirit. That's interesting. Good way of seeing that, like that. Okay. Any others? Evangelism is a huge one. All kinds of things about evangelism. What have you learned? Different, um, there are 
I just, I just wrote the wrong word. I guess also, really, Acts was kind of hammering down what the gospel actually is. Yes, what the actual message is—that's the essentials of of our faith. We'll be talking about this in in a little bit again. But you know, Paul's the real problem for Paul that got him arrested and put him through all these trials was the message that he was preaching right they made it about other things the the charges but the reality was the real problem was the message that he was preaching and so we'll talk about that but yes so evangelism the methods and tactics and what in methods and tactics what did we mostly learn about that well i mean when he was evangelizing the Okay, so make it suit your audience. That you got to know your audience and you need to make sure that whenever you're preaching that it's appropriate for the audience. So when you're talking to a young child, a 10, a 12, a 15-year-old, you need to talk to them on their level about the things that, that make sense to them. If you're talking to a person who's interested in um, a certain subject or their work, takes them into a certain way of thinking, then you need to approach it from that way. And you also maybe need to know what their objections are. If, if their objections are about, does God even exist, then that needs to be the subject matter, right? Uh, and if, if their objection is they don't believe the word, of truth, the word of God itself is true, then maybe it needs to be about that first, to establish the, that truthfulness so that then you have something to bounce off of. One of the apologetics classes that we have had together, for those of you who've been here a while, in Second Timothy, we, we covered that, uh, giving the apologetics for the truthfulness of the Word of God and going through and trying to break down some of those stumbling stones in the path of a person to convince them that God's Word is true, Right? So that's, again, evangelism tactics. Know your audience. Know what their objections are know what, or know what their interests are, right? In Paul's case, he knew about the Stoics and the Epicureans and of their philosophies, and so he used one of their own philosophers. He also looked around him, and he saw what it was that was all around them that was in their life and in their world, and he approached it from that perspective of the many gods that they all were aware of, even the unknown god, <laughs> And the unknown God. And he's, let me tell you about that unknown God. He is the only God. And he doesn't dwell in houses made by men's hands. All right. So that's another great thing. Any others? Being prepared in season and out of season to give a a defense for the gospel. So the message and um, the opportunities... I'll just put it this way. Okay. So the opportunities in every circumstance, basically. So with Paul, he ends up arrested. It's happened more than once, right? Remember the first time he was arrested? What happened there? A woman was speaking divinations. He casts out the demon. They threw him in jail, and what did he do? Bang, and there's a finger, whatever, and, and then the, uh, 
he didn't. Yes. So there might be another little point in there, too, is knowing when to flee and when to stay. Because sometimes Paul was encouraged to flee, come quickly, and let's escape. Other times he was sitting tight because he felt like this is where God had him for a reason, right? Follow the leading of the Spirit in your circumstance. Sometimes you must flee. Sometimes you're to stay. You have to figure it out. And that is not always easy. But I do believe that if you're seeking God in it, and if the end, the end goal for you is that God be glorified in it and that people be saved because of your testimony and your witness, then you will get a sense of what to do. The Lord will speak to you. Well, that's true, too. How often did Paul in, and Peter both, in their witnessing, have rejection? A lot. More often rejection than acceptance. In other words, it was the remnant, really, that came into faith of, of those that they would witness to. Okay? So there's a great principle. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that we sometimes do too, you mentioned apostles that were involved, character and focus on what their mission was and all that stuff. If you look at it, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, like, we focus on more than, like, the person of the church, and I'm not saying that's wrong. No, no, no. It would really be fun to go back into like Matthew now or Luke or John or any one of those, but particularly Matthew, Mark, or Luke and pull out our insights about the training up of those apostles by Jesus that prepared them for this work that they did as the apostles, you know, because we can put them up on a pedestal, can't we? And say, wow, they did this and they did this and I want God to do this and this with me. But what did God do with them for three and a half long years personally? What did Christ do with them? He taught them. And did they stumble a few times? Lord, grant that I may sit at your right hand. Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Right. And what was so profound that what changed them, what took them to this new place of being so confident where before they were always messing up and so hesitant? The, the falling of the Spirit in their life, number one. And what does the Holy Spirit do for us when we receive the Spirit? Second Corinthians chapter 2 tells us what about those who have the Spirit and those who don't. Somebody remember that one? Without the Spirit, what? There's no spiritual understanding. With this, because things are spiritually discerned. You need the spirit, right? And there's another verse that talks about who are we, but we have the mind of Christ. Why? Because we have the spirit. So huge difference from before the cross and after the cross, before the Holy Spirit and after the Holy Spirit. I think that because we all have the Holy Spirit, so, and we've had it so dominantly in our life 
the whole time, we don't realize, I don't think sometimes, how much understanding we actually get. When we watch the news, when we read newspapers, when we have conversations with people, how we're able to discern and really see truth that the, world, the rest of the world is still clueless about. Uh, do you ever watch the news and go, well, how come they're so stupid? <laughs> right? Why are they so blind? Why don't they see that this is the wrong way or that this is the right way? Or do, don't they know that acting and behaving like that will result in, it's, well, well they're, says, walk, they're walking in the flesh and not in the spirit. He says he blinded them and put a veil over their eyes mm-hmm. so they Well, he, there was a blindness and a veil over their eyes until the fullness of the time came when he revealed all things. His desire was always that they would come into faith. And certainly Abraham came into faith. His eyes were not blinded, right? But, but, the, but the blindness comes. How does blindness in the life of an individual come anyway? What did we see this week when we looked at Isaiah? Sin. But what did Isaiah, wasn't it Isaiah 6, I think, that we looked at? And he talked about the, the um, Israelites. What did he say about them? What was their problem? They were stubborn. Right. Yes. Well, let's look at that real quickly. We'll, kinda, we'll do a little diverting here now and move into some of the things that we looked at this week. I have a list here about... That subject. I think. What did I do with it? Hmm. Yes. The Holy Spirit spoke through Isaiah in in Acts, right? And he says um, about them, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah. Now, this is Paul speaking to whom? To those Jews in Rome, right? After having given them, actually, he says he spent how much time with them teaching them that day? From morning until night. He spent hours with them. What did he give to them during those hours and hours of discussion? The gospel. And he tried to teach them about Jesus from who? Okay, again, evangelism, making it suitable to their, his audience, he used the prophets and the law, right? And he, and he spoke with them from morning until night, trying to persuade them about Jesus. And in the end, some believed and some did not. Yes. Would not. I like that too. I like that too, Craig, that they would not. And that is what my question is. Why does he then quote this Isaiah verse? Because it's the stubbornness of their hearts. It isn't that they couldn't believe. It isn't that the message wasn't made available. What you see is within them a willfulness of rejection, a willfulness of ignorance, right? Because these are men who... Uh, in Judaism, say that they are looking for this coming Messiah. That's exactly right. In, in unrighteousness, exactly. So the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah. You hear, but will not understand. Or 
right? In verse 26, you hear, but you, but will not understand. In other words, you refuse to understand. It isn't that you can't, but you refuse. You see, but you will not perceive. You refuse to perceive. Your heart is dull. Your ears scarcely hear. The words are coming in, but you're just blocking it, right? Uh, you only hear what you want to hear. It makes me think of that Second Timothy verse that talks about those in the end time people will only hear what their tickling ears desire to hear. And so you get churches filled with people who are willing to listen to some person from the pulpit speak about things that have nothing to do about godliness or righteousness or repentance. But they hear about how God loves them and wants good for their lives. And all they have to do is name it and claim it and God will do it. Right? Because why? That tickles their ears. That's what they want to hear. But he says, no, your ears scarcely hear. You want to hear real truth. That what God wants from you is righteousness and holiness. He wants you to bow your knee to him. He wants to be your Lord and your Savior. And you can't have one without the other. You have willfully closed your eyes to God's truth in verse 27. Right? You have closed your eyes. He's, the implication there is willfulness. So otherwise you might, if you could if you wanted, right? Otherwise you might see, you might hear, you might understand with your heart. And if so, you might even repent, <laughs> right? If you'd just be opening up your ears and be willing to hear it. And he says, and if you did, if you did repent, what? I would heal you. I love this because this is Paul's closing message to this group whom he spent all day long giving them the gospel, right? All right. So again, he, he addresses his audience with that which they know from their own scriptures. And he lays it out for them that, that the problem that they're having with not believing is not because they're not hearing it's because they refuse to hear. So d- how does it apply for us? In our world, as we're preaching the gospel, we all heard. Our eyes were open. All of us in here had a heart for God and wanted to hear from the Lord, obviously. We took that step by faith of repentance and believing. What about the rest of the world that we're out there living amongst? What does this do for our insight on this? Isn't it kind of a reality check a little bit? It's kind of like, okay, I get it. I get it. And instead of becoming frustrated and or angry or burned out or any of those other kinds of responses we can get to. Instead, what it does is it it helps us to at least uh, perspectively determine, am I throwing my pearls before swine? Is this a moment when God is saying, stomp the dust from your feet and retreat, leave? Or do I need to persevere in it And hang in there and be patient and just wait for another opportunity. Maybe later, try it again. Maybe later, try it again. We talked about this last week, didn't we, Lise? What about that verse that says someone plants the seed and 
Well, and that's a whole other subject. Yes, that's, that subject is speaking about what Paul really did in his missionary trips, his three missionary journeys, right? Possibly, but you're talking about then a progressive part of coming into faith where the planting, the watering, what, what is it? Planting and watering and something else. Some plant and some water, but God gives the increase, right? Okay, some plant and some water is speaking of that ministry in the church that some plant, meaning they get saved, yeah. and some come behind that then and build up the church. So it would be this environment. I'm watering. <laughs> That's a different subject. It's a different, different verse. Yeah. 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 You merged them. <laughs> yeah. But I understand what she's saying. She's saying, isn't it true that you can, it is a progressive thing to come into faith. Yes. And we don't know. It may have an effect. Absolutely. That's correct, Mar- Margaret. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it isn't for not God. What does God say about his word? Will not return unto himself void. Now, what, what I find very interesting is if you really evaluate that statement, it doesn't return void, does not assure that they'll be saved, does it? What it means is the result is they either will stand con- condemned or they will stand saved eventually, one or the other. But that it's not going to return void. God is going to have a result of in it. Your words are not worthless. You speak them in exactly as Margaret said. Who knows? One day it might finally all click. And the thing that you, I I love this thought in my mind. It happens all the time. But, you know, especially as a parent, you tell your kids a million times, right? And then then some person, they've only met once. Oh, he told me such and such. And it's, you know, all of a sudden the light comes on and they're all on board with it. And I'm like, I've only said that a million times, right? But some plant, some water, and God gives the increase. Eventually, it may bring to fruition. So in that regard, if you take that analogy and make it a different kind of point that works, but that verse of some plant, some water, and God gives the increase has to do with the growth of the church, right? That can happen. Sometimes people, yeah, in its unintentional consequences of being so wrapped up in your ministry, that can happen. So we need to also learn from from that particular testimony that as God's servants that we not, you know, it's a hard thing to balance whatever you guys are into. What If you're into prison ministry, if you're into, uh, you know, administrative things, if you're into serving, if you're into, I mean, whatever you guys are into. Um, my teaching, if I spend so much time with my teaching and preparations and I totally neglect my home, my family, my children, my friends, then that's not in balance, right? That's true. Yeah. 
Okay, we got off a little bit. Let's get on back on board. Okay, let's talk a little bit about segment divisions, just so that we can lay segment divisions out and make sure that you guys got those. I want you to see these segment divisions that were found in Acts if you did not find them. The most obvious one, and we've talked about it before, is that key verse. What's our key verse? Okay, Acts 1.8. And so how does the segment, if you're on your, on your at-a-glance chart, you're marking your segment divisions, right? How are you marking this segment division according to Acts 1.8? Where does it break down? Starts Acts chapter 1 through chapter 7, okay? And, and where is that segment? Jerusalem. Okay, and then the next one is basically 8 and 9, and it covers what? Mm -hmm. uh, Judea and Samaria. And Samaria. And then the last one is going to be the largest one, which is 10 to 28, and it's what? Yeah, the remotest parts of the world. Or of earth, I guess is how it says it there. Okay, very good. What else? Did you tell me some other things that you may have seen as far as segment divisions? Okay, so you could be segmented by characters, right? Major characters. Uh, I'll put that on here, major Major characters. So uh, we're going to cover Acts 1 to 12, and that's who? Peter. And then we have Acts 13 all the way to the end, which is 28, and it's who? Paul. Right. Now, we can do another one, by the way, a a kind of a subdivision breakdown. Once we're under major characters, we could also look at Paul, and we could break his part down how? Through those journeys, those three journeys, Paul's journeys. Um, We have starting in Acts 13 and 14 is his first. Then we have Acts 15 uh, through 18 is the second. And then we have Acts 18, 23 through 2038 is the third. Now, quite honestly, I think I could say that you actually he has, has four journeys. I know they don't designate it that way. But wouldn't you say this last segment that we've looked at is a journey? And is it, was it for evangelism? He was under arrest in doing it, yes, but it was definitely designated by God himself. Christ said, you must go and witness to where? Rome. So I don't know why they don't call it four missionary journeys, but they don't. But I'm going to call it a fourth one because I see Acts 21 to 28 as his fourth in chains. Maybe that's it. He didn't come back and report. <laughs> as far, although there's scripture cross-referencing that indicate to us that he is set free, right? 
He says, this will work out to my deliverance. And I am, he felt assured that he was going to have a deliverance. And we see him later go back into chains and, and then his demise comes later, right? I don't, I don't know where he went. We know he was two years though. And, and he was very specific. That's a good point. How long was he in Rome under house arrest? Two years. That indicates to us what happens at the end of two years. He's released. Why do you think he gets released at the end of two years? There you go. It's back to our legal case last week where we talked about all the legal things they could and could not do. Well, apparently the, the legal uh, uh, time of designation for being able to be under this kind of arrest and not come to a conviction was two years. That was the limit. So it ran out of its jurisdiction time and they had to release him. There's some tradition that he went to Spain after. Yep. But I don't know. Right. It doesn't, and it doesn't really say to us. What we do know, though, is later he writes uh, again about being in chains and that he's, he knows he's at the end. Second Timothy talks about that, and he passes on the baton of the responsibility of his ministry onto Timothy at that point. Um, and he speaks about, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. He knows his end is coming. So we know later he does go back into chains again, probably for pretty much the same thing, right? <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Well, he goes back to Jerusalem. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, they're rough. If you want to, let's. Yeah. Yeah. I can just say, I would, if it were me, I would skip all that stuff. I would say, in general, 13. 13 and 14 is his first one. 15 to 18 is his second one. Basically, 19 and 20 is his third. I mean, although it starts just a little bit before that. In 18, 20 or whatever it is, he starts out that extra journey. And then 21 to 28 is the fourth. But that kind of categorizes it close enough. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. It, it, that is how they broke it down. But it has to do with when he went back to give um, a report at Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. So you can get really technical or you can do like I, (laughs) just in general. And you know what's really cool is, inductively, what is the purpose for us identifying segment divisions? How does that help us? Okay, it does. It sets context. It helps you see the theme. It also lets you see kind of the layout, how the book is progressing, right? It also helps you later to say, okay, let me think. He went to his first journey. Let's see, that that started, was that 13 or 14? I mean, you can kind of vaguely remember it a little bit. For for some of you. Some of you I know it'll be in one ear and out the other. But for some of us, like me, I like to try to remember. So if somebody's asking me a question, I can go, ooh, ooh, let's see. That was his No, that was his second journey. Let's see, where would that be? That would have been in Acts, uh, you know, and eventually the cobwebs will wipe away and I'll remember. I think that was around 18 or 19, somewhere in there. And at least I can drop in and start flipping the pages until I find it, right? Um, Being great if I had a 
a complete recall of everything, but I don't. But if you can get general closeness, that's why I kind of did what I did, Margaret, in erasing all those extra things. If you make it real clean for yourself in your segment divisions, you're more likely to remember it. Okay, and that's what I want. I want you to remember, okay? Um, Okay, there's another breakdown, one other Besides the journeys, the major characters, and the outline of, of the gospel spread. Yes, there you go. Jews and Gentiles. So let's put that one on here. Jews and Gentiles. As far as major focuses of attention, we see Acts 1 to 9 are the Jews. And starting then from 10 to 28 are Gentiles, mostly. Although the Jews are in there once in a while, but the major focus is him going out and the taking of of the gospel message. So let's give you your segment divisions found in Acts. Did you know you did that? You you all did that very well, by the way. You didn't even really think on it that hard. You seem to follow that really well. That tells you that it's obvious, right? Once you've done it, it's like, oh, yeah, I see that. I knew that. Of course. Move on. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, I want to add on this what we've learned. Before we go into today's, and we'll do it pretty quickly. It won't take us long. I want to add in here on things that we've learned about, you know, from Acts. One of the other subjects was, was the idea of uh, be aware and forewarned. I think it's, it's an important one that there are, there are three things. Number one, there are false teachers or false prophets out there, according to what we looked at. Um, hold on a second. There are false prophets. In Acts 13, we saw that especially. And he was very specific. He says, I'm worried about you because I know that when I leave, there will be those false prophets, those false teachers, those, uh, those wolves in sheep's clothing. They will come in among you, right? And they will try to distort the truth, and they will try to lead you astray. So Paul addresses that one as a real concern uh, as far as the birthing of the church we need to be aware of the false prophets another thing was that um, there's a responsibility to both loose and bind we talked about this out of Matthew um, what was it Matthew 16 where Peter makes that public declaration that thou art the Christ the son of the living God well when we're in the book of Acts did we see a time where where Peter actually does a loosing and binding, and Paul does it as well, where he, he, he witnesses to Simon, the magician, and then what does he do after Simon supposedly makes a confession of faith? What does he say to him? You son of unrighteousness or of the devil, right? You need to what? repent. So he does his loosing and binding as it has been instructed by Christ earlier. And it's the same authority that Christ had already predetermined, had said in, in foreknowledge to all of this, that that is what he would be doing, loosing and binding. Do you guys remember what that term loosing and binding means? It means to either allow or to forbid. That's the technical term of it in the, um, 
as far as uh, Jewish law system is concerned. And one of them means to, to allow, meaning it's in agreement with what God has already established in the heavenlies. Not what I think is true, but what God has said is true, right? So you have to look at the person, you evaluate the fruit, just as Jesus says, look at, a, look at the tree and see what, what do you see on the, on the fruit of that tree. When he looked at Simon, he saw Simon was all caught up in what? The signs and the wonders. He wanted the ability to give that same kind of power. He was enthralled by the mystical, magical qualities of what he saw going on. Where, When we looked in comparison to uh, previous accounts when the believers came into faith, what were they all enthralled with? The teachings of the apostles, the fellowship of the brethren, and prayer, and the sharing of goods with one another. So you saw the real fruit in that life of a transformed life, right? But but with Simon, he's like, ooh, I want to do that. Can you give me that? I'll pay you, right? So a huge difference there. So this is another essential thing for us to understand about loosing and binding. In other words, evaluate. Uh, uh, true believers, maybe. Not for the sake of judging people, because it's not our place to judge, but for what purpose? And why is it important that I discern whether or not a person in our midst is truly saved or not saved? Why would that be important? Mm-hmm. Go. Your witness will be different, though, too. I mean, you, you know, I'm somebody who we believe is a believer, we're going to preach and talk with different than we do somebody who we question maybe or not. Okay, so in the end, it's for us to be able to uh, protect both the sheep and the gospel message itself, right? Because if the gospel message is spoken to the world by our behavior, that's the best way we speak the gospel is how we live in their eyes, right? As they watch and witness us. There's some people who say the only Bible some people read is you, right? So they watch your life and they say, oh, so that's what a Christian's life. So, yes? Exactly. That's another good way of saying it. Exactly. So why is it so important for us as the church, as a basic doctrine of what we've learned out of Acts, to evaluate whether a person who has said they're saved really is saved? It's not because we're trying to be judgmental. It's not because we're trying to be harsh. But it is our responsibility to protect both the gospel message, and if they're living their life out, saying they're a Christian but they're not, they are basically presenting a wrong gospel to the world, right? And so we need to try to help, help them, number one, come into faith, but uh, number two, to protect the gospel. Secondly, it's to help protect the sheep themselves. Someone open Acts 20, and let's read verse 28 to 32 real quick, just as a review on that point. Because I do think it's an important one that has come up in here. Not as often as some of the others, but it's still good. Acts twenty twenty eight to 32. Yes. Thank you, Martha. Yes. Um, so it says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Very good. Okay, that's good enough. That's it. So what you see then is he is actually really concerned about this. He goes into prayer concerning it. It's one of his last things he says to this particular group before he moves on. He warns them. And for to me, if we're going through the, the book of Acts, learning and trying to, to glean out of it what God wants us to know as a church, this is one real essential point. Just to simply be aware, there are false teachers, there are false confessors sometimes, and there, there might be false teaching that will seek that'll seep its way in if you aren't careful also let's look at acts 19 11 to 19 it's another point it's, it's slightly different though here what we see is a hijacking scenario right it's acts 19 11 to 19 susan you want to read that one sure. god was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Okay, so in that particular record, then what we see are there is the potential for some to come along to the church and hijack things that they see, particularly the supernatural signs. Things like signs, wonders, healings, miracles. There are people, and do we not see even churches and 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 uh, occultic kind of things going on in our world around us where people have seized on the, the uh, what do you call them, the, just the high energy kinds of qualities of, of, of the gospel and of church, basically, of God himself, these supernatural powers, they were trying then to adjourn in the name of. So it could look, it makes me think of what Jesus says, some of you will cast out demons in my name, and I will say unto you, I knew you not. And this would be the sons of of Sceva, who came in and tried to hijack what they observed Paul doing, calling on the name of Jesus, but they didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Do they have the right to call on the name of Jesus to do this, to adjourn anything? No. And so in the end, of course, we see what their demise was. But we need to know that we are to protect. And I think about back to Ezekiel. What what was Ezekiel's role? What was he charged with doing? To be a watchman over God's house. So that principle, you see it in the birthing of the church. We're to be watchmen. The way that we are to be watchmen it is to observe and discern true believers, false teachers, and people who are trying to hijack God's message or God's power, right? And that is not for the sake of, of judging, but for the sake of protecting the message and, and uh, uh, the body of Christ itself, especially those young little sheep who are new in faith. Yes. Well, under this being aware and forewarned, I think you have to put that there is active opposition against Okay. 
Okay, so evangelism, I'm going to put that under here, active opposition. Not well, not only to op, to evangelism, but to the Church of, of Christ. You're right. Let's put this up here too. Our enemies. That's you know that's a good one. Ooh, I like that. The opposing G- Jews. Oh, I like that. That's a really good point. Because you know, we said I said earlier, you do see the Jews in those last chapters, but the predominant message or the predominant uh, characters in there is, are the Gentiles, right? in 10 to 28, but you're right. When the Jews are presented in 10 to 20, mostly it's them oppose. It's those who are not in faith and that they are opposing it. Where in, in Acts 1 to 9, it's Jews coming into faith. That's really good. Good point. Nice. Nice job, Craig. All right, let's go on to Paul at Rome and finish out our last couple of chapters. The first thing I want to do is establish what the charge was against Paul, because I think that's an important accusation. Just to clarify what's going on in these last uh, parts. We see three civil charges and one Jewish charge, right? So tell me what they were. Number one. When, when Paul was accused back in chapter 24, verses 5 and 6, if you have to flip back, you can do that. He said he was a real pest, right? Which we decided was basically meaning he was what? A public nuisance, right? <laughs> he is stirring up problems. The second charge was what? Okay, he causes, causes, or stirs up yet dissension. Meaning he's a, a disturber of the peace. It was peaceful until he showed up and he stirred it all up, this dissension, and caused unpeace, right? Okay, the third charge was he was a what? In verse 5, the last charge is that he was what? No, that's in 6. He's a... Of a sect, right. And which was illegal, right? To have a sect was illegal in Roman law. What had we learned earlier under his appearance before Gallio at Corinth. What had, what had Gallio, however, already established concerning the sect of the way or the Nazarene? That it was. It, was a, it, was, it fell underneath that umbrella, and therefore it wasn't a new sect, right? It was a fulfillment. He actually saw it as that. The last thing they charged him of was concerning the Jewish charge, which is in, in uh, verse 6, which was what? Right, he defiled or desecrated the temple. Had he? 
No, he had not. It was just accusations, correct? Um, I can't remember where, where was that? That was back in um, the chapter before that where he went to the temple to finish up his, his vow and, and so forth. And they saw him with someone that, that they knew was a Gentile. They assumed then that he had gone with them into the temple and therefore he had uh, defiled the temple. That was the accusation. And of course, it was, it was only an accusation. It was not true. Now, Paul then comes along and he says in the next chapter, in chapter 26, so these are, this is kind of a review. This was chapter uh, 24, I think, yeah. That this one is now going to be the real charge. The real problem that was going on here for Paul. Why had he been arrested? What was he preaching? Okay, Paul was preaching... Eventually, it comes to the. It was, he was preaching two things. Number one, before the resurrection, what was he preaching? Go to twenty six, twenty two, and tell me what you see there. Somebody read that verse. James, can you read it since you have it open? Yes. Okay, so what had taken place? That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead. Okay, so he was, he was proclaiming Messiah, right? He was basically preaching that Jesus is the prophesied Christ, right? Jesus is the prophesied Christ. That was the first thing he taught. And then he said, by reason of. What is that saying? What does that mean? By reason of his what? Resurrection. So it, translate that into English. His resurrection is proving that. That's exactly right. His resurrection proves that he was, in fact, the Christ. And we are witnesses of his resurrection. So I think that's so good. Jesus is the prophesied Christ and his resurrection proves it. That's what he was on trial for. They did not like the fact that he was teaching them Jesus is that Christ that they have been promising. Now, when you now that was in chapter uh, 26. So that's kind of a review of what we did last week, the la, uh, in our last week's homework. Now move forward to, to uh, chapter 28 and look in verse 20 and see what you see there. I know it. They're ne- yeah, exactly. There really were never any charges that were confirmed at all. One of the things that we determined by the time we went through uh, the legal process last week is what should have happened to Paul by the time he was done with, even with, with Felix, but particularly also with Festus, and then he saw King Agrippa. What should have happened? He should have been released, right? And Agrippa and those with him at that time, and including Festus, say, you know, if he hadn't appealed to Rome, we could, we could have set him free, right? But what forced him into appealing to Rome? No. Right. And what were they going to do? What was Festus's great, big, brilliant idea? 
let's go back and do a double jeopardy deal. Let's go back and try you again. You don't mind, right, Paul? Let's go back and retry this case. And they were trying to kill him. Of course they were. And so at He probably would have been killed on the road, potentially. And what, what do you think was going through Paul's mind when he stood in that court case, court hearing room? What, what would you be thinking? You're standing in the court. You've just proven that you're innocent. And he says to Festus, you know full well. So everybody in there is already on board with he's innocent, right? So, so what was going on in his mind about having to go back? I'm not going to get a fair trial. First of all, I haven't gotten a fair trial here. I can see, judge, that you are biased. And what did the scripture tell us about his bias? Was he biased? What was he wanting to accomplish? To do a favor to the Jews. It was exactly what Felix had said, or was said about Felix in the previous chapter. Felix was attempting to give him a, uh, a favor to the Jews. And so Felix kept him there for like two years, right? Then Festus comes on board, right? And now Festus wants to do the Jews a favor. He tries everything. When he brought in King Agrippa, why did he bring in King Agrippa? What does Paul tell us in the opening verse when he starts to give his testimony to Agrippa? He's an expert in the law and all these things pertaining to the Jews. That was why they brought him on board to begin with. Basically, he was a, a colleague for, Fef, for uh, Festus. He was his expert colleague who was going to come on board and hopefully help him come up with what? Some kind of an accusation. <laughs> because what was it to Paul uh, or what was it to Festus in sending him up to Caesar without a charge? He says, it's absurd that I should send him without a charge. I mean, the whole thing is hysterical. So in the end, what we see is Paul is innocent. He got, he got his back against the wall. He could see it was a biased judge. He could see that if he got on the road to go back to Jerusalem, those Jews were going to kill him. He already had been forewarned earlier of their murderous threats through his nephew overhearing things, right? And so he really didn't have much other choice. He got his back up against the wall. Now, who do you think is sovereign over all of this? What has God been saying all along to him since early? You're going to go to Rome. You're going to go to Rome. You're going to go. Even before he got to Jerusalem, got arrested the first time and put into these trials that we just observed last week, he had already said to them, but I must go to Rome. But, you know, so... When he is arrested and he's in the jail, the angel appears to him. And what does the angel say to him about his circumstance there? That's right. Take courage. You must witness of me at Rome also. So Paul is getting the the gist of things. So when he appeals to Caesar, what do you think is going on in the back of his his head there about all that? Yeah. Wouldn't you think he's chuckling inside of himself? God, this is how you're going to do it. I was wondering how I was going to afford to go to Rome. Now I know you're going to take me there under arrest. In chapter 2820, when we realized then that the real charge against Paul was that he was preaching that Jesus is the prophesied Christ and that his resurrection proves it, what does 2820 then do to restate that in a little bit different way? Yeah. He says, I am wearing these chains for the hope of Israel. 
I am wearing this chain for the hope of Israel. Now, what is the hope of Israel? That's right. That, that coming Christ that was supposed to be, they were supposed to be waiting on. Okay, so then we get into uh, Acts chapter 27 on the whole. We see him on the journey. What is the theme of Acts 27? How did you title that one? Oh, I love that. <laughs> the minnow is lost. I can sing the song. Who, who knows the song? Uh, Gilligan's Island tune. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there once was a, a sailor, right? Okay. So tell me um, how, okay, you said the, the minnow was lost. What, any, other, any other suggestions? I really shipwreck. Shipwreck. That's a good one, too. Okay, there you go. All right, Paul's... Okay. Um, I'm going to put Paul's perilous journey to Rome, and that'll kind of encompass all of what you guys just said. It'll kind of balance all of it. It is, a, it is about a shipwreck. Right? He gets shipwrecked. Um but I think what's really cool is this. When you look at, if you're really careful, did you do your research, like Kay said? Go in and look at um, what the commentaries have to say about mariner time activities and, and this kind of voyage and where they went and so forth. What did you guys discover about that? A lot of details about, about it, but did you notice by chance, that, that it actually identifies in there certain times of year that they are to travel and not to travel? Okay? They were traveling at the wrong time. Now, go back to verse 1 and reread verse 1. 127. I'm sorry. Go ahead, James. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Okay, so the very first three or four words, when it was decided that they would travel. Who decided that they should travel at the time that they traveled? Who do you think did that? Uh, no. Who's in charge of them? Rome is. Festus and, the, and those others and Caesar and so forth. To do a favor for the Jews, exactly. I, I, I don't know. Did anybody catch that? Maybe. What do you think? Do you think that maybe there was a little bit of plan in here about, well, you know what? Let's put him on a ship and see if he makes it. Well, at this point, think about it. Does he still have a charge against Paul to send to Caesar? Exactly. So let's pick a time that's perilous and let's hope he perishes on the way so I don't have egg on my face when they go before Caesar. Because if he doesn't get before Caesar, I have no, there's no, char- I have no charges. Do you, are you ca- did you all catch that or am I the only one that saw that? I just thought, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, okay, this is Genesis chapter 50. What was, what is, I wrote it down. Go to Genesis 50 verse 20. God, men meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
I, that verse just popped in my mind when I, when I started putting, and I didn't put it all together until I started looking. At first, I wasn't going to bother with the commentary because, you know, I'm so bad about, I don't like doing the commentary on things like this. And it's a lot of details that we don't need to necessarily know what time of the year this wind blew and which way it was. And it's like, it's, it's additional details. But the thing is, when I actually did read it and look at it, I, I got some insights. I learned another little Katie wake up moment, you know, sometimes those things that you think aren't going to develop anything for you end up being some of the greatest little treasures of insight. So you got to, you got to hang in there and do it anyway. So I thought about that and God meant it for good in Acts five. Let me go back here. Let's see 23 and 24. He said, for this very night, an angel of, of God to whom I belong and whom I stood before me said, told me, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted to you all those who are sailing with you. So men meant it for, for evil, but God meant it for good. Even though he got on the ship at the worst time of year, their intent was hopeful. I think their intent, this is Katie's opinion. I think their intent was he's, they were hoping he would die and not show up at Caesar's palace with no real charges because now he's going to look like a, a really bad, you know, judge, <laughs> right? And he's going to have egg on his face and he doesn't want that. So, but God said, look, I'm going to preserve you. So that, Men meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in that. And then if you go to Acts 5, 38 and 39, I have no idea why I can't. I wrote it down though. 38 and 39, Acts 5. Oh, this is good, Katie. (laughs) Okay, does somebody want to read in Acts chapter 5, 38 and 39? God is so good to me. He helps me so much. What do you see in 38 and 39? Wow. Does that not tie all this in together? You see that early on in this book, this has been a, a, a principle that has been established, even by those who are outside of faith saying, look, if this is really of God, nothing can stop it. Here's Paul now on a ship thrown out there in perilous weather, I think by purposeful demise, you know, the, he, they were hoping he would die, I think. He gets on this ship and he goes and God comes to him in the, it, it, by an angel and says, don't worry, I'm going to protect your life. I mean, um, then it goes on as they stopped at one place. Paul said, we ought to stay here. Yes, yes. But it was the pilot and the captain, so it makes you wonder if they might have been in there. Maybe. Right. They, they were, absolutely. They should have, and yet they were, they were, what do you call it, hedging their bets that they could get out of that port. Why did they want to leave that one port and move on to another one, to winter, for the, for the winter? It really wasn't suitable. It was not a good, it, would, it could have been sustained there, but it wouldn't be a comfortable sustaining. So they were looking for comfort. They wanted to move on down the way, and so they took a chance, and in taking that chance... It was a bad choice. They should have listened to the man of God. What do you see there in this, this dynamics between Paul trying to warn them and their try, them trying to use human reasoning? What should they have done? 
they should have listened to Paul. Yeah, and and one of the points in here that's talked that is given to us is the the name of the the ship that's given to us. And on the bow of the chi- the ship, it had the 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 heads of a, the twin brothers or something like that. It was called, right? Did you guys do research on that? What is that about? What is that about? Yes, the protector of sailors, which is hysterically funny. Did they protect them? No. Who was trying to protect them? Paul, God through Paul was trying to protect them. Who did they, who did they put their trust in? Their own reasoning and their two-headed ship right? To protect them, to get them there. I saw a spiritual thing kind of going on in the message of all of the subliminal things. There there were little pieces of insight that were given to us that were not direct statements, but it's like there was this, this spiritual warfare that you could see going on between them trusting in their own reasoning and them having this double headed mariner superstition of protection through this, this thing that was on the bow of their ship. Um, and that in contrast to Paul saying, this is really not smart. This is not a good time to go, you know. Um, and, they, and they, of course, they listened to their own reasoning and to their own flesh. They wanted to be where they would be comfortable, so they went on. Um, what else did you learn? What happens as, as Paul is on that island and so forth. What, kind, what is the outcome? Yeah, man meant it for good, but God meant it for, I mean, man meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In the end, what did happen on that island? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Okay, Paul, another supernatural sign occurred that they witnessed. That, and what did that tell them? They, they started out saying about Paul that he must be what? He must be a murderer, <laughs> right? And in the end, when he didn't die, then they changed, did a complete turnaround. He must be a god, right? So, but what Paul did do was what while he was there? He did some miracles. He did a lot of healing. A lot of people on that island were healed of illnesses and sicknesses. So God's message through Paul's witness and through the supernatural things God did with him brought the gospel message out again to a little island that, that probably he wouldn't have been on except for this situation, right? You know, back a little bit on your signs and stuff, um, you know, in those times, people, and, and today in, in uh, third world countries or whatever, where there's more signs going on, they recognize the hand of God behind them. Mm-hmm. Right, that's exactly true. Right, right. I, I do think in a, in a way this is what Pastor Rob was trying to bring forth yesterday in sermon was, you know, we need to, to retrain our thinking about these supernatural things, and we, but we need to be wise in the way that we do it. So you have to be careful. You have to know your doctrines. You have to set it in proper context and so forth. But to deny that there were supernatural things going on and that they had a specific purpose at that moment would be to say that God's word is not true, 
right? We know it's true. We know these supernatural signs were accompanying Paul. That uh, One James brought up earlier today when we were chatting was that even his shadow casting upon some people were causing people to become well. His handkerchief that he had touched was healing people. So God was doing something extremely supernatural in that time for the birthing of the church. What is the major theme of the book of Acts? how the church was birthed, the, pro- the power and the, and the birthing of the church. So in that, then what we see is how God is supernaturally working. So again, God, men meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And in the end, many who Paul encountered are, are going to be saved. Now, I want us to go to a cross-reference she gave us. Philippians 1, 7 to 26. And if you, I don't know if, if you had time to really evaluate that. But she said, read this from the perspective of knowing uh, where Paul had been and all that had been going on with him through the book of Acts. And what does he say in Philippians 1? What happened during his time in chains and so forth? I know y'all have to look it up and read it. Uh, 7 to 26, I think it was. I'm sorry, say it again. I couldn't hear you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, that is true. So, so because of imprisonment, there were some who were encouraged to speak more powerfully also. But who also got, got saved earlier in that? I think it's earlier in the verse. Yes, the Praetorian guards were, were brought into faith. Who is the Praetorian guards? These were the guys that were accompanying Paul, and he went back to go to, to Caesar, right? So in other words, because of his imprisonment itself, not only is he stopping at a place like Malta, healing people, and the word of God is spreading there, but also those who are journeying with him, him, what do you think they're witnessing all along the way? Yeah, his actions. And every time he preaches or or gives his testimony to whoever he's supposed to give it to, who's there to hear it? The Praetorian Guards. So eventually, then, according to Philippians chapter 1, what happened while he was underneath this, these chains? Many were saved, even those who were guarding him. So, wow, what do we learn about, about our faith walk with God in that? People are seeing and watching. Uh, Janice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I guess in that statement, he was saying that even some, you know, that, that again, back to these pretenders about, the, you know, false prophets or uh, 
people who might come in and say that they're saved, but it really aren't. They preach for a different motive. So that tells us, can there be pastors even at a, in front of, at a pulpit, stand there and preach the gospel who are not saved? Yes, there can be. If their motive is not to actually preach Christ, but they've come into this position for other motives, other reasons, for personal gain or personal exaltation or whatever, or maybe daddy did it, so I'm going to do it, or who knows. But, but Paul is saying, whether they do it in, tr- in truth or in pretense, Christ is still being preached. What does it matter? There you go. That's right. And in this I rejoice. Exactly. All right. So uh, now in chapter 28, let's move on to the next one. Paul's perilous journey. That was really, really cool. Now let's do the theme for Acts 28. Pardon? Yeah, Paul is finally at Rome. And what does he do when he arrives at Rome? He's testifying of Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus told him. You must testify of me, right? You must give an account of me at Rome. So here we go. Paul testifies of Jesus, not just at his court case, but of Jesus at Rome or to Rome. In other words, just as God said, right? So there's our two themes for 27 and 28 about he and he. So Paul says they had. My question would be, why did he need? Why did he need to go to Rome? What do we learn about that first few verses encountered there at Rome? When he first goes to Rome and he comes to encountering with the Jews, what do we see is the reason Paul really needed to go to Rome? What did they know about him? What did they know about the way? This thing called the way. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. He said, you have to come here and give us insight on this. They've heard of the sect and that it is spoken against everywhere. But they'd only heard. They, had, they didn't know firsthand why it was spoke, being spoken against because they didn't know what the real message of the way was, right? And so then it says in 23 that they desired to hear from him. And so how many sh- showed up? A large number of people. They, a large, in large numbers they came. Okay, so then Paul explained. He explained two basic things. He explains what? kingdom of God. And number two, he, they, he tried to persuade them concerning Jesus from what? The law and prophets, right. So again, we get, we get again a little insight about evangelism, right? And how the, and specifically what the message is when we looked at the doctrines of our triune God, the important thing here is is the message right he is the message of the church right 
And so, again, we see Paul, that's the first thing he does. He explains the kingdom of God. He explains Jesus from the law and the prophets. He spoke to them from morning until evening, and some were persuaded, but others were not. Now, we, we talked about him quoting Isaiah, right? To me, this was very interesting in that he, this is their beloved Isaiah, who spoke under inspiration of the Holy Spirit about hard and dull hearts of the Jewish nation, right? Now, why do you think he mentioned this particular reference? What was he reminding them about? Yeah. Do you remember what Isaiah said about your fathers having hard hearts and dull ears? And P.S., by the way, think on this a minute. What happened to them? Where are you right now? Where were they? Still under the thumb of another nation. They had been through the Babylonian kingdom, the Medo-Persian, and Greece, and now Rome. They were still under the thumb of that consequence of their fathers who had hard hearts and ears that would not hear. So he's reminding them what got them to where they're at was the same issue that they're having right now. They wouldn't listen. They're stopping up the ears, and it was a willfulness. We've already went through that what Isaiah talked about, their hard hearts being willfully. So he did that. The first thing he did is reminded them about the rejectedness and about the hardness of their hearts. And then secondly, he declares a basic pillar truth to them. So he's doing this basically as his last line of persuasion. Number one, let me remind you. Number, number two, by the way, it's a warning to you, right? This is what your fathers were like, were like and I'm warning you, there's going to be consequences just as they rejected God and did not obey and they were taken into captivity now you're going to reject Christ and there's going to be a consequence and then secondly he declares this basic truth and it was this that the Gentiles must and will hear the gospel also so although it's it's a loaded statement there's a lot of under underneath the surface uh, points that are doctrinal, uh, uh, that, that really they should know. This is what I said in my little notes to myself, that they would have been very familiar with the, this basic pillar of, of truth if their hearts were open to God, but instead they're very resistant, right? God's salvation is intended for the whole world, not just for the Jews. Now, how would they know that as a pillar? Because of their own prophets and, and the law. First of all, if you go back to Genesis Chapter 12, the promise to Abraham is that it would be a blessing to who? All the nations of the world. They would actually know this from their own prophets and law. Psalm 67, if you want to make yourself a note and look it up later, it's really, really good. Psalm 67, 1 through 4, gives you another place where they, through their own prophets, would know that salvation was intended for the whole world. It was never intended for the Jews alone. Secondly, this particular pillar is on another foundation beneath it, which is this principle that they know about. And that is that that all men are created by God. And therefore, God's redemption is being offered to all men, right? Because where did man come from? Paul taught this earlier in Acts when he was at uh, Athens, that from one man, God created what? All nations of men. That men should what? Seek him and perhaps find him 
though he is not far from anyone. So Paul had actually already taught this earlier. And so here he's kind of alluding to it. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. In other words, it must be taught to them and they will hear it because it's salvation for them also. I love, I love how he brought that back at the very closing. It was the last thing that is said here in, in Acts, uh, uh, the, the record of Acts and of Paul's ministry, is that this message of salvation is for Jew and Gentile. It's for all men. The, I went through and made a list for myself, and I'll send it to you guys. You can read it later. Of all my favorite little verses through the book of Acts, things that are, that are quoted in here. Um, but he, he, he said... Um, Acts 15, 8, 9, it says, God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us, and he made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. All right, well, we did it. We're all the way through Acts. Amen, amen. You guys did good. Give yourselves a round of applause. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs>